We're in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. If you're like me, you've probably had a hard time at certain points in your life wrapping your mind around particular concepts. You can think about maybe a time you were sitting in a class trying to understand math or maybe physics or maybe some of the finer points of Russian literature. And you felt like everyone in the room was sort of tracking along and, and grasping the information, but you just couldn't quite get there. You couldn't put your hands on it. Couldn't make sense of the material. Maybe you've experienced that in a Sunday school. Maybe you've experienced that in a sermon, in a particularly didactically heavy sermon. Maybe even right now, as I say didactically heavy, you're experiencing it. What about when you're trying to help someone else understand something? Right? You're, you're trying to communicate something and you're trying to get them to lay a hold of it, to grasp it, to, to comprehend it. And it just seems like they're, they're not getting it. I remember going through this with Amber when we were in language school. I seemed to do really well with Spanish. Amber seemed to struggle and I tried to explain some of the more basic concepts of Spanish grammar and syntax and, and she wouldn't get it and I would just oh, I would get so frustrated, you know, because I knew the problem wasn't with me, obviously. I was doing a good job communicating everything on my end. And now I see some of that same frustration in her as she tries to help our daughters with their homework and they just can't quite grasp certain concepts. It can feel hopeless when we feel like we can't get a hold of something. It can feel doubly hopeless when we're trying to help someone else understand something and we feel like they just can't get it, like they'll never get it. In this morning's text, this is basically what Paul is doing. He's doing what he's already done at, uh, at another point in the letter. If you remember earlier in chapter 2, Paul prayed and he asked God to help the Ephesians understand the power of God that was at work within them. Well, here in this morning's text, Paul is again praying to God and he wants God to help the Ephesian Christians understand something. But Paul says that this thing that he wants the Ephesians to understand is something that maybe is not knowable. Maybe it's something that surpasses knowledge. And Paul knows that even as an apostle, there's only so much he can do. And so he goes to God in prayer on their behalf and says, God, I need you to help them understand. So with that in mind, let's read the prayer for ourselves and then we'll dive in. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Father, we are your people. You have given us life through your word, and we are here this morning gathered around your word, and we listen expectantly. Do us good. Amen. I've got two points for you in this morning's sermon. Paul's prayer and Paul's doxology. 
Keeping it simple. Paul's prayer and Paul's doxology. Point number one, Paul's prayer. Uh, There are two kinds of people in this world when it comes to rabbit trails. Those who start what they're going to say and then they go off on a rabbit trail and then they they get lost and they go, oh, uh, what was I talking about? What was I saying? Uh, How did we get here? And they have to ask for help to get back to where they started, right? Then there are those people who are really good at stopping and saying, actually, I need to say this, and then they go on this big, long trail, and then they just circle right back around to where they left off, and they say, so anyways, what I was saying was, I'm in the former, but it seems like from what we see here in Paul's letter that he is in this latter group. The reason why I say this is because it seems like Paul is beginning to say something that he started saying all the way back at the beginning of the chapter. If you look at verse 14, it says, for this reason, for this reason. Now, if you go back to chapter 3, the very beginning of it, in verse 1, he says the same thing, for this reason. I think what we see happening here is that Paul, as he's beginning to pray at the beginning of chapter 3, as he's writing out this letter, he realizes that he needs to say something about his ministry. He needs to qualify some of the stuff that he's about to say by talking about himself and his, his role as an apostle and what that means for the church. And then now in verse 14, he's saying, okay, got that taken care of. Let's get back to it for this reason. For this reason, of course, is Paul's explanation of why he's praying what he's praying. He's about to go into a prayer and he's telling us the reason why he's praying. Well, what is that reason? Well, if we, if we realize that the prayer really starts back at the beginning of chapter 3 with a bit of an excursus, then it, it probably means that in light of everything he said in chapter 2. But I think that's probably not right either. I think it's probably, Paul is probably praying about everything that he's been saying since the beginning of the letter. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I think that. The theme of Paul's prayer about the Ephesians is love. It may seem like it's strength when you read the text. He's saying, Father, I'm asking you that you would strengthen them. But the reason why he's asking God to strengthen the Ephesians is so that they would be able to comprehend God's love. So, it seems like love has been the theme throughout chapters 1 and 2. If you remember, go back to chapter 1, verse 4. He's talking about the electing love of God and the predestining love of God. It says in chapter 1, verse 4, in love he predestined us and he adopted us and he sent his son to save us. And then in chapter two, it says that even when we were dead in our sins, Christ loved us and laid his life down for us. So this theme of love seems to be running throughout the first several chapters of the book. And now as Paul is sort of transitioning from the first half of the book of Ephesians to the second half of the book of Ephesians, he's kind of putting a bow on the first half of his sort of theological half of the book by praying. And he's got this theme of love on his mind. Now, Paul addresses uh, God as Father in this prayer. If you look at verse 16, he says, uh, no, excuse me, verse 14, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now, what you may think here is that this this term Father is kind of the, the same way that Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? A sense of familiarity. We go to God as children and there's a relationship. And that's all certainly true and I think Paul understood that. But when you read the text, I think that there's something else going on here. I think that there's a different tone. Uh, I think the term Father here probably is Paul showing reverence and honor to God 
as a sort of patriarch of all the peoples of the earth. And you get that when you see, he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, when he's talking about every family, he doesn't mean every nuclear family, right? He doesn't mean from whom all the Johnsons and, and all the Ericsons and all the whoever is named. Family is a term that uh, in, in, in Judeo thought referred to nations and tribes and peoples, right? And so what Paul is saying here is that God is the father of all of the peoples of the earth, Jew and Gentile alike. He's the father of them all. He is the patriarch. You see that same kind of language? That's why the Jews called Abraham Father Abraham, right? They weren't saying that Abraham was literally their father. They were talking about him in this patriarchal sense, and that wasn't a pejorative when they meant it, when they talked about the patriarch. Now, uh, he says that this father named every family that is named on the earth, right? And this is just another way that Paul is talking about God's authority over these people, over all of the peoples of the earth, right? Uh, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, the sign of the authority of human beings on the earth was that Adam was able to name all of the animals. And here, Paul is speaking about God in this authoritative way, and he's the one who names all of the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations of the earth. He names all of the families. And because of this, because Paul is showing honor and reverence to God in this way, it says that he bows his knees before God as he approaches him in prayer. He bows his knees before God in prayer. Now, you may be thinking, Sean, well, how come we don't really bow our knees in prayer that much anymore? Well, maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe in your own prayer life you do. Sometimes I feel so overwhelmed by the majesty of God and the authority of God. And I just have to, like, even when I'm praying in my office, I just have to stop and get down on the hardwood floor and just put my face down before God. It just feels like the appropriate posture. I think some of the older saints in this church understood that, and that's the reason why you have these things down here. They're called altars. I don't think that's probably the best thing to call them. I don't think that's really what the Bible means when it says altar, but I love the heart behind it, right? It's an opportunity for Christians to come up and bow the knee and to show reverence before God. But there are also times in the Bible where you stand up to show reverence, right? There are many times in the Old Testament where when Scripture was being read, the people would rise for the standing of Scripture. There's also times where to show reverence and honor is to lift up holy hands, right? And this could even change depending on your culture. The point isn't whether or not we're standing or we're kneeling. Sometimes we sit during Scripture readings. This morning we stood during Scripture readings. The point is that we have a proper heart posture, before God, right? Because we remember the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they would quickly demonstrate a physical posture that was meant to communicate reverence, even though they didn't really have any reverence in their hearts. So we just need to make sure that our heart posture before God, when we go to God, both individually and corporately, that our heart posture is right, and then just trust that if that's right, then our physical posture will sort of follow depending on whatever time and culture and, and custom we may find ourselves in. Okay, let's dig into the body of Paul's prayer here. What Paul is asking God to do is simple, right? He, we've already said it. He's asking God to give the Ephesians strength so that they can comprehend the love of God. He says, he talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. That's a tall order. To understand the love of God. I mean, how do you even begin to to, to comprehend something like that. I can't even begin to comprehend my children's love for me and my wife's love for me and even the members of this church 
however much that may vary from member to member, right? I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that. How much more for God's love? Well, I mean, it gets even more difficult when you consider what Paul says in verse 19. Look there. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It, you can't know it. It's, it's beyond knowledge. It can't be known. And yet he wants us to know it. So on the one hand, Paul envisions the love of God as something that can be known. That's where this, this illustration, this picture of, of measurement comes into play. You know, the length, the height, the depth, and the, what's the other one? Breadth. Yes, all of that. It's something, when you, when you talk about that, it's communicating a sort of ability to really lay a hold of something with knowledge, right? To really be able to grasp it. You know, Paul envisions us being able to understand the love of God the way that a builder might be able to understand an aspect of the material that he's working with. You know, a, a two by four, it's a two by a four by a, I got nothing, okay. Now, on the other hand, Paul says that this love surpasses knowledge. So the question naturally arises then, well, how can I know the unknowable? How can I comprehend the uncomprehendable? And this is the heart of Paul's prayer. But before we dig into that and how we can grow in our knowledge of God's love, we have to understand, we have to know that only those who have experienced the love of God through the gospel, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to atone for our sins, only those who have experienced that love can even begin to understand what God's love truly is. What Paul is praying here is that the Christians would not understand some intellectual concept the way that you might try to understand uh, speech act theory in a, in a college class. Paul is praying that the Christians would be able to understand that which they have experienced. And so if you have not experienced this love from God, you cannot begin to grasp it. I want you to know that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may think that you understand something about what God's love is, but if, if I had to guess, I'd say that it's probably out of sync with what God says about his love and his word. Now, there, this, this is true of Christians as well. There are many times that we as Christians think we understand God's love, but really when you look in his word, we end up finding something there that's really different than our preconceived notions. And I'll just give you one example. It's commonly thought by Christians and non-Christians alike that God's love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. This is a, a, a thing that's unhelpfully repeated in pulpits all across this morning in many churches because a lot of people are visiting for Easter. This idea will probably be communicated. Come to God because God loves you and his love is unconditional. Well, friends, I don't think that that's true. You don't find that in the Bible. Now, on the one hand, they may mean something like this. When they say God's love is unconditional, they may mean that you don't have to perform in order to receive God's love. You don't have to live up to some certain standard of perfection in order for God to love you. And if that's what we mean when we say that, well, yeah, that's true. But to say that it doesn't have any condition whatsoever is, is actually profoundly anti-gospel. It's just not true. You see, the reason why God's love does have some condition is because it's inextricably connected to his justice. It's connected to his justice. It's informed by his justice. You cannot have love without having justice. 
The illustration that I use to teach on this all the time is a judge who he has a, a rapist or a murderer come before his bench and this man or woman is obviously guilty and the judge knows he's guilty, the jury knows he's guilty, everyone in the courtroom knows that this person is guilty and the judge goes, I love you, you're free to go, get out of here. You know, I love you that much. Well, the person who was raped or murdered wouldn't think that that was very loving. The, the community wouldn't think that that was very loving. The, the, the victims, the family of the victim wouldn't think that. Why? Well, because we know that love and justice are connected. As this judge robs this situation of its justice, we know that he's also being inherently unloving. And friends, this is bad news for us. Because the gospel says a lot of great things about God's love, but it also says a lot of bad things about who we are because we sin and we rebel against the God who has loved us so much. That's what makes our sin so egregious. God has loved us so incredibly well, and yet we have still rebelled against him with such unction. And God's justice demands something for that rebellion. God's justice will not simply allow us to go unpunished for our sin. His justice must be satisfied. So then, what hope is there? What hope is there for sinners like you and like me and like like everyone in this city? The hope has to be in God himself. For that reason, God sent his son Jesus Christ down to live a perfect life of justice that we could never live. He never sinned. He never fell short. He never rebelled. He never broke any rules or laws. He never did anything that was out of the will of the Father. He lived a perfectly righteous, just life. And then he laid that life down. And he paid the penalty of justice that we can never pay. He counted the cost that we can never afford. And now God, again, because he loves us, extends this great offer of salvation to all men and women in every tongue, tribe, and nation all over the world. Come to me, receive my love. The condition of this love had to be that my son died. But he did it. So come home. But that's not the end of it. You see, there's actually another condition. It would be great if I could just say like, okay, there's one condition. And the condition was that somebody had to pay the price for sin. But there's actually a condition on your life for God's love. And the condition is this. You have to turn from your sin. In the same way that when a man or a woman get married and they commit themselves in love to each other for life, they have to turn away from the false, broken loves of of other relationships. Friends, when we turn to the love of God, we also have to turn away from the false, broken love that this world offers us. And it's only when we do that can we fully enter into the love of God. Returning to Paul's prayer. So we've said that Paul wants the Ephesians to have a knowledge of God's love, but that's almost impossible because God's love surpasses knowledge. So we're asking the question, what's the deal, Paul? Can we know God's love or can we not? And the answer is simple. We can't, not on our own. That's the whole reason why God is going, excuse me, why Paul is going to prayer, why Paul is going in prayer to God is because we cannot know this knowledge on our own. Look again at verses 16 through 17. It says, That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. In verse 17, Paul says that we need strength to comprehend this love that God has for us, this love that he's demonstrated in Christ. When, when we think about strength, when we think about power, we tend to think about, uh, you know, like lifting heavy objects, you know. I need, do I have the power to lift up that stone or do I have the strength to, you know, carry that refrigerator up the three flights of stairs helping my cousin move even though we don't talk that much and I'd rather be doing something else on a Saturday. Okay, letting some of my other stuff come through. Now, we also tend to think about power and strength in relation to like adversity and circumstances, right? Uh, d- does he have the strength to, to, to make it through this difficult life circumstance? Right now, as we continue to pray for our sister Sandra Sharp, as she's made it through surgery and about to go into chemotherapy, you know, we, we pray that she has the strength to endure that trial and that time of suffering. But there is a sense in which we need the strength, we need strength to be able to comprehend things, right? There is such a thing as mental exertion. There's a sense in which realities and concepts like love uh, require strength if we are to understand them, a mental strength. I feel the truth of this idea most acutely whenever I come into contact with any kind of math. I'm from, from long division to basic subtraction. I just I have to sit and exert all of my mental forces on the problem and the equation at hand. So, you know, if a train leaves Cleveland at 1.30 going 40 miles per hour, I don't even, I'm just automatically, I'm seeing spots, I'm beginning to get hazy. When I try to do math, I can feel the lactic acid in my brain pooling up. I feel the fatigue, you know. Uh, the burn is deep. And this is what Paul says it takes for us to comprehend the love of God. It takes real mental and spiritual strength. Now, there are typically two ways that we comprehend the love of God experientially. One is uh, when we sort of have a moment, right, or we have an epiphany. Maybe you're reading a book or you're listening to a sermon or you're in a Bible study or you're talking with a friend or you're confessing sin, whatever the case may be, and all of a sudden you feel God's love shed abroad in your heart, right? You just have this intense experience with the Lord and if you're like me, you cry like a baby and it's this really, you know, if you've ever had this, you know that it's one of the sweetest gifts that God can give you this side of heaven. But that's not very common, right? If that was common, it would probably be a little less special. So the most normal way that we uh, grasp and understand and experience God's love is when we're intentionally pursuing that love when we're chasing hard after it, when we're trying to lay hold of it. And that's not easy to do. But Paul tells us how we can do that through his prayer, or at least he tells us how we can be equipped to do that. In verse 16, Paul says that we must be strengthened through the Spirit in our being who causes Christ to dwell in our hearts. So there's this work here that the Spirit, God's saying, Paul's saying, okay, God, I need you to have your Spirit work in my heart to do something so that Christ can more fully dwell in my heart, and that fully dwelling in my heart allows me to comprehend more. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait, I thought Christ already dwelled in my heart. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? I, I am a C, I am a C-H, I'm going to do it. I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, uh, uh, I'm going to keep going. I've got C-H-R, no, I can't do it, down in my H-E-A-R-T, right? I mean, it's in the children's song that we sing. If we're Christians, We have Christ dwelling in our hearts. So what does Paul mean here when he says that Christ needs to dwell in our hearts? 
Well, I don't think what he means is that uh, Christ is going to move in. I think he's talking about degrees of settling in our heart, degrees of dwelling in our hearts. Uh, one of the ways that you can just know that's what Paul means is that he, there are two different Greek words he could have used to communicate this concept of dwelling. Uh, one of them refers to an alien or a stranger moving to a different land, and, and it communicates this, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, maybe I'll be back next month kind of thing. The word that he actually uses, though, refers to somebody settling down and moving into a place and making it their permanent abode. So you think about settlers and pioneers, right? Settlers, pioneers. Pioneers, what do they do? They pioneer. They go, they, they blaze the trail. They, you know, they go out into the wilderness and they, and they clear a space and they get a town going or whatever their thing is and then they, they go on to the next place and they never really fully settle into any one place. In contrast to that, you have settlers. And what they do is after the pioneers have come through and cleared the space and got things going a little bit, you know, maybe found a creek and a place to get wood, they settle, right? Uh, Amber and I moved six times in our five years of military service. It felt like we never really got a chance to settle in any of those places. When you talk to Doctor's Farmer over here, when you, when you talk to the Doctor's Farmers in this congregation, they'll tell you they have moved so many different places and they have lived in a number of different cities in houses and apartments and shacks and dwellings of various sorts. Uh, and even now, as they're here living and committed to this church and committed to this area by God's grace, they're still renting their house. They're actually house hunting. And you know, when they actually do get the house, Lord willing, that they want and they move into it, they're finally going to get to experience this sort of settling in process, this gradual dwelling process. You know, they'll go through that first phase where everything's new and awkward and it doesn't really feel like your house, you don't really know the neighborhood. Then they'll begin to familiarize themselves and it'll start to finally feel like home. You know, they'll start calling it our house instead of the house, stuff like that. And then in a few years, they won't even be able to imagine themselves living anywhere else. Their house will become their home. Little Daniel will probably have little tick marks on the, on the door showing how tall he's gotten. And there'll be a path that the dog has worn. I don't know, maybe you're cat people. I hope not. We'll talk later. But, you know, you're, what was once just a house really starts to feel like your home. And that's because you're continuing to settle in. And, and that's the language, that's the, 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 the reality that Paul is talking about here. In verse 17, Paul uses this word picture of being rooted and grounded. So as Christ continues to dwell in us, we become increasingly rooted and grounded in Christ. It's this sort of symbiotic relationship. The more Christ dwells in us by the power of the Spirit, the more rooted and grounded we are in Christ. Uh, this language of being rooted and grounded, this is an agricultural and an uh, architectural uh, phenomenon that he's describing. So if you think about being rooted, a tree without roots easily topples over, right? In order for a tree to be a good, strong, healthy, vibrant tree and to live for 100 years, it needs to be firmly rooted in the ground. So when a storm comes, it doesn't get blown over. When you think about uh, the architectural aspect, to be grounded, it's referring to the foundation, right? So anybody who builds a house tells you the most important part is you have to have a solid foundation. If this foundation isn't good, when the earth shifts underneath it from a flood or from an earthquake or anything like that, the house can crumble. And so Paul is praying that we would be increasingly firm, strength, strengthened, uh, rooted into, attached to Christ in a very strong and secure way. So how do we stay rooted and grounded? I mean, there's an aspect to this 
that's almost entirely on God, right? Paul is saying, God, you give this to them, please. Please give this to them. But you remember that usually in the Bible, whenever we find that God sovereignly does something, he usually has a means that he does it through in our lives. So the question is, if, if God answers this prayer to uh, have Christ grow increasingly in our hearts, that we would be increasingly rooted and grounded in Christ, what is the means through which God will sovereignly bring that about? And man, it would be great if I had something new and special to say here to you guys. But the beauty of the Bible is that it's so simple that you can miss it. It's just, it's the same thing all the time. The, the means of grace that God has made available to us don't really change. And I think that's good for our souls. So we can talk about gathering with the body of Christ. You know, uh, coming to church when we have an agreement in this church covenant and, uh, as a member of this church that you're going to be here as part of this gathering, it's not just because we think that there's a rule for that, although God clearly commands it, it's also for the good of your soul. And it's for the good of my soul, right? We need each other. The scripture uses the language of stirring one another up to love and to good works. When we're committed to one another to be in the same body, when I show up and I talk to Eric and Teresa and Michael and Tammy and Britton, there's something intentional about our relationship where we stir one another up. And as we stir one another up to love and to good works and we confront and rebuke and exhort and challenge one another, we grow increasingly rooted in Christ. Friends, if you want to see what a mature Christian looks like, you will likely not find them disattached from a local church. If you want to find a truly healthy Christian, you'll find somebody who is planted in a church, who's committed to the relationships in that church through thick or through thin, you'll find somebody who's truly rooted and grounded in Christ because they are committed to Christ's people, the church. Another thing we could talk about is God's word. In God's word, we read of God's love, right? This is how God has most clearly communicated his love to us. In his word, we read his promises, which are reflections of his love for us. The, less, the least amount, less time in God's word probably means that you're going to be less rooted and grounded in the love of God. We could talk about the ordinances, Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We make a big deal about baptism and the Lord's Supper because they really matter. They're not just these religious trappings that we have. They're not these things that we go through. It's, the, baptism communicates the gospel. It's a sermon that communicates the love of God. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we together as a body are thinking about God's great love for us and that he sent his son who shed his blood on the cross to die to save us from our sins. And then we're looking forward to Christ's second coming and we're looking forward to God's great love coming to us fully and finally when he comes back and sets all things right and makes all things new again. Maybe one of the most helpful things I could say is we should avoid this, the things that compete with God's love in our lives. Right? The things that typically lead us into sin and sin itself. And I think you know what those things are in your life. As I was working on the sermon, I was trying to think of different examples that could hit this person and that person and this person to talk about things that may compete with the love of God in our lives. But I bet you even as I talk about it right now, you're thinking of something in your life that you know, yeah, that thing is definitely in competition. That thing wants to crowd out God's love in my life. That thing is definitely robbing me of the experience of being more deeply rooted and grounded in God's love. Well, friends, whatever that thing is, it's not worth it. Get rid of it. God's love is worth it. 
And if you haven't had that experience lately, I would just encourage you and challenge you to try to get rid of it and then see what happens. See if you experientially don't begin to make sense of what I'm saying to you now intellectually. Now, there's one more aspect to this petition that we need to consider. You'll notice that as Paul begins this prayer, he begins by talking about the the Christians in the church at Ephesus. But then he moves on and he says this. He says, along together with all the saints in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and love the breadth and length and height and depth. You can understand something of God's love as an individual Christian. It is possible. But unless you understand yourself along together with all the saints, unless you understand yourself as part of a body, not even this local body, but a universal body uh, that spans time and space, all of God's people who have ever been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, all of God's people as one body, unless you understand yourself as part of that body, there will always be an aspect of God's love that you fail to comprehend. There will be an experience of God's love that you cannot really lay a hold of. Uh, Time to repeat myself again. One of the things that I'm fond of saying in this church, if you're here for 10 more years, it might even be a fun little game to like, Keep tick marks in your Bible of how many times I use this illustration. But God does not save us individually as if there's a tube that goes from our hearts up to God in heaven. God saves us and places us into a body. And the rest of the metaphors of Scripture when they speak of salvation are all these same kinds of corporate metaphors. God says that we're saved and placed into a body. He says that we become sons and daughters of God. And what that means is that we have brothers and sisters. Christ, obviously, the big brother. But then we're saved into this family as we're adopted. It talks about us being citizens of heaven, which means that we are part of a holy nation, right? We don't exist as some solo citizen on an island, private island that we own that's its own little country with its own constitution. No, there's a nation that... Christ is the king of, and we are saved and placed into that nation. And the illustrations could keep going. We have to understand God's love to us, not just individually, but as part of God's people. God's love is not solo intellectual property. It cannot be trademarked. It cannot be copyrighted, not by any individual, not by any local church, and not by any denomination. The love of God belongs to all of God's people. This is one of the reasons why we recite the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, right? When when we recite these ancient creeds that Christians have been reciting together for 2,000 years, we're practically taking a moment here together as a local church, which which has a tendency to be a little inward-facing, a little inward-focusing, thinking that, you know, we are the church. And it it casts our... our, our, um, our vision outward. It causes us to look out beyond ourselves and even down the corridor of time through history at other saints that have come before us. And you know what, brothers and sisters? Saints who will come after us. Saints will be reciting these creeds together until the Lord Jesus comes back. In John 17, Jesus prayed that the church would be one, even as he is one with the Father. Some people have misinterpreted Jesus' high priestly prayer there. They think that what he means is that there needs to be a sort of visible, structural unity. We all need to be a part of the same 
church, we all need to be a part of the same denomination. Uh, our Roman Catholic friends have interpreted that to mean that uh, we all need to have the same guy who's in charge of us all, and he lives in a big city in Italy with big walls built up around it to protect him. But that's, that's not really what Jesus means here. He's not referring to a super hierarchy of unity. What he's referring to is the unity that we have in the gospel. The unity that Christ wants for his people is, is that we all believe the same gospel. And so friends, anywhere that you see a church that rightly preaches and believes the, the Bible and the gospel of that Bible and practices those ordinances, there you find a church. There you find unity and there you find the love of God. What that means is that right now, even in Sri Lanka, in Peru, in Uzbekistan, in Dagestan, in the PCA, in the SBC, in the Church of God, anywhere that the true gospel is preached and the right ordinances are being practiced, there we have unity and love together with our brothers and sisters. And that leads us into the doxology, point number two. Point number two, Paul's doxology. Uh, you probably won't experience a praise break in this church. You may not even know what a praise break is. It, there's many churches where uh, the pastor will be preaching and as he digs and digs and digs into God's word, the congregation gets sort of increasingly riled up and then eventually the, the stop, we can't take this anymore. God's word is just hopefully at the best of time that, that this is what's happening, okay? God's word is too good. The truth of the gospel is so powerful. We just have to stop. Sorry, pastor, and we need to praise. And they sing and they dance and they clap. Anybody who wants to talk about that in the life of this church, come see Grant Miller and Russell Berger after the sermon. And there's nothing wrong with that. They respond to the truth of God's word with lifted hands and songs of praise. And they feel like if they, if they don't, they're just going to explode. I think that's what we see happening here with Paul. He's just wrapped up this big chunk of the letter that de deals with the most significant, most impactful, most glorious truths of the gospel. And then he's gone to the Lord in prayer and he's like, Lord, please help them to understand all of this. I know that they can't, it, it surpasses knowledge. They're, they're never gonna get it. But you can help them to get it, Lord. You can strengthen them for this. And then after that, it just feels like he has to stop and praise God. He can't keep writing before he gets into the more practical theology of the letter. And so he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's significant that in this doxology, Paul says that God can do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think because he just got through asking God to do something that we could never ask or think of. He just got through asking God to do the impossible in this prayer, and now as he praises God, he goes, God, I asked you to do the impossible, and I trust that you can do the impossible. You can do far more than I could ever even begin to imagine. This verse is one of the pet verses of uh, prosperity preachers, TV preachers, TBN, CBN, Daystar, right? Are you in debt? Are you starting a new business? Do you want a Mercedes? Do you want your financial breakthrough? Can't pay the bills? Need help with your rent? Go to God in prayer, brothers and sisters, because God can do far more exceedingly than we could ever ask or imagine. Well, I think we see from the context that that's, that's not really what Paul is talking about here, is it? 
I think what Paul is talking about here is obviously spiritual and not material. What God, God can certainly do all those things, but that's not his prerogative. When you look at the nature of Paul's prayers in the book of Ephesians alone, what we see is Paul wants God to do something spiritually for these people. He wants God to take the balm of the gospel and rub it into their hearts in such a way that they are forever healed by it and that their experience as Christians grows increasingly holy, deeply rooted and grounded in Christ. When we think about God doing the impossible in our lives, we should think more about being resurrected from the spiritual grave than healing for our bad backs, although he certainly may do it. We should think more about growing in our understanding of God's great love than growing our bank accounts. And this might be a good time for us to just stop and examine our prayer lives. What kinds of things are we asking God to do for us and to do for others in light of who he is? Are we asking God to do the impossible, knowing that he's capable of doing more than we could ever even begin to imagine? Are we asking God to grow us in a knowledge of his love? Are we asking him to keep us from even a hint of sexual immorality, which certainly feels impossible and increasingly so with each passing day? Are we asking God to resurrect our marriages? Are we asking God to save our children? Are we asking God to use us in the spreading of the gospel to all nations? Uh, I'm very thankful for the elders in this church. One of the reasons why I love them so much is because of how capable they are, right? I know that the men in this church, if I ask them to do something, it'll get done. And what that means is that I ask a lot of them because even in a small church, I just can't do everything on my own. When I ask them to do things for me, I do it because, when I do it, there's a demonstration there of my trust in their capacity and their strength and their ability. Well, I think the same thing is true of God. When we go to God in prayer, the, the sorts of things that we ask God to do, the sort of things that we petition God for, well, that's a reflection of what we think about God and his strength and his capacity and his ability. Do we view God as somebody who truly can do the impossible? Like in Russell's Sunday school class this morning, saving a person who has gone to the very ends of the transgender spectrum. We think that that kind of person is beyond hope. Well, friends, no. They're not beyond hope at all. Nobody's beyond hope. The pedophile is not beyond hope. Nobody's beyond hope. This is the God that we serve. And the sorts of things that we take to God in prayer serve as daily evidence of what we believe about the God that we serve. Do we really believe that he's capable of doing anything and everything? Your prayers will answer what you believe. The power that is work within us, at work within us is the most potent power in the universe. There's nothing that the spirit of the living God cannot do. There's no stone that he can't unturn, not even in your own life. And because of that, we glorify God. Look at verse 21 again. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. He is worthy. Now, I think it's fitting for us to respond to what we've seen about God's love and his power together in our own corporate doxology. So now our brother Will Stevenson is going to come up and he's going to lead us in a prayer of praise. Let's pray.
Lord, it is difficult to fully express all the adoration that you deserve. You could have stayed hidden from us. You could have been like the watchmaker God who wound up the clock of existence and disappeared into the background. But you have chosen to make yourself known. You want to be glorified. And so, Holy Father, we praise you for making yourself known, for planning our salvation, coming in human flesh, and giving us the seal of our inheritance by the Holy Spirit. We were blind, but hallelujah, now we can see and know you. And our awareness of you and your goodness has been increasing ever since. You have proven your love towards us by blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You chose us according to your sovereign love and you purchased our adoption by sacrificing your son on the cross. What glorious grace. We proclaim our love and adoration to you for making children of disobedience into your children. Life without you is miserable and aimless. We were dead in our trespasses, buried underneath the vanity of life and unaware of your all-satisfying glory. But being perfectly merciful and kind and strong, you have chosen to work resurrection power into our lives. And now we who were dead are fully alive to you, our King. Because of your goodness, we walk in good works and our hearts soar when you were glorified, even through our tiny lives. What a privilege. But this is not true of, only, of us only as individuals. Because of your good plan, we get to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. We praise you for your good design, that the beauty of your glory is displayed through the gift of the church. Because you are a God of harmony, of peace, of unity. And the more we pursue these good gifts, the more gloriously you shine. All of your works proclaim your majesty, but your matchless wisdom is beheld throughout all generations and even all spiritual domains as the church walks in the works you have given her. And the church always will. The church will never fail. What a privilege it is to be a part of the body of Christ. And what a day it will be when all of your creation will be united under your benevolent rule because you are good and worthy of praise. So would you dwell in us more richly? Would you fill our cups even more full? We want to taste and see more of your glory. We want strength to measure out every nanometer of your love towards us. And now to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please stand together as we sing.